This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So it's uh, great to be here. Uh, my colleague John Cass cannot be here today, but he shared a few slides with me, and I'm going to share them with you. It's the four first slides in my presentation. Uh, primate brains vary a lot in terms of overall size, so we have here a couple of examples. One is a human brain, and one is a microcebus brain. Huge differences in absolute brain size. What we know is that uh, we can have mammalian brains that have similar brain sizes as a whole, but uh, uh, many uh, large differences in terms of the number of cells that they contain. And here we have an example of an old monkey to the left and an agouti mammalian uh, brain to the right. Um, early mammals, uh, John suggests, may have had about 20 cortical areas, and this reconstruction is based on fossil record and also on comparisons with extant species. Uh, what you have here up left is a drawing that represents an early mammal, uh, and from fossils, of course, we get information about shape, overall size, and some patterns of convolutions. Um, recently, uh, imaging studies have reconstructed a couple of uh, brains in the context of a number of cortical areas that they have. So here we have an example of the macaque cortex that is estimated to have about 140 areas, according to this study, while the human cortex, according to another study, uh, has probably around 183. So the question that John poses is, how many cortical areas do the rest of the primate species have, including the great apes? That's an answer that uh, is not there in place yet. Um, what is fascinating in uh, the line of research of mammalian evolution is that uh, things change not by just increasing in overall size, but also by actually uh, subdividing and multiplying. So what we have here is we have an example of a squirrel mammal and a tree shrew that um, if you see to the right of the, of the image in the histological section, uh, it's clear that these two animals have a single uh, nucleus that is the posterior pulvinar. But if we look farther down to the galago, which is a, a prosimian, a, a primate prosimian, what we have is actually we have a split of that same nucleus into two. And a similar situation happens in other anthropoid primates and so forth. So the question is, how do we get these new areas? What is the mechanism that brings uh, these areas and subdivisions about? Um, John uh, wants to remind us that in primates we have eight, not three or four, parietofrontal networks like we have in other mammals. So actions like looking, reaching, grasping, body or head protection, aggressive face, hand-to-mouth running are really controlled by these neural networks in the parietal and frontal lobe. And the cortical areas that are involved in these networks are actually multiple. They're not just one. So he poses the questions, how are these networks organized in humans? And do they differ between humans and um, our closest relatives, the great apes? So this is what brings us to my part of the, of the lecture today. How do we pursue human-ape neuroanatomical comparisons? So working chimpanzees, gorillas, orangutans, gibbons, and humans 
are for some of us and have been for pretty much everybody for the last few decades out of reach. So the idea is a study of the great apes and humans involves only non-invasive techniques and of course also brain tissue, right? We need to have the brain tissue to be able to study non-invasively the nervous system. Um, the, The techniques that exploded in the 60s and 70s and later in the field of neurosciences uh, were very promising and very uh, productive in terms of experimental invasive studies in animal models. We learned a lot and we still learn a lot from that. But uh, what about the human-ape comparisons? So in the 90s, uh, the question of uh, brain evolution after the last common ancestor was really out of reach. But if there is a will, there is a way. So um, there was an obvious solution to that problem, and that was reaching out to zoos across the country uh, and asking for brain tissue that results from uh, natural deaths of the animals. So that can be put together with human tissue from donations from the families of individuals who die. So that early effort, collecting a brain tissue, and then also applying those very, very new non-invasive techniques that started to become available for human studies, uh, the structure MRIs, uh, got applied to these post-mortem scans, and the brains that were back then put in these buckets and scanned in scanners meant to be for human scanning. And then eventually that project gave rise to living uh, animals uh, and uh, living great apes, And uh, those early seeds of the work really moved to an organized, large-scale set of projects that gave us a lot of studies, literally hundreds of studies since the 90s that involved uh, structural imaging, functional imaging of the great apes and humans, and also uh, a lot of valuable tissue. Uh, What have we learned? So we have learned a lot of things, and it's daunting of a task to try to summarize, but I want to bring up some really quickly points that we learned uh, that in some respects humans uh, scale or uh, exhibit features just as expected for a primate or an ape, uh, including the white matter and the corpus callosum size, the glia to neuron ratios, the proportion of inhibitory gabergic interneurons, the size and neuron of the frontal lobe and the frontal cortex, yes, uh, the frontal cortex is three times larger in humans, but so is the rest of the brain uh, when compared to the great apes. Um, we have microstructural, microstructural, and behavioral asymmetries that are widespread and that they are not uniquely human as uh, we used to think in the past. Dendritic branching uh, gets larger in humans, but overall follows primate uh, trends. Axonal myelination also is as expected for humans. Human is not expected, so we have a reduction of the primary visual cortex, increase of the temporal lobe, we have increased size of neuropil space, and many other things, and I want to focus on on some of them in the the time that I have. So number and size of cortical areas. Well, how many do we have and how do we differ from other primates? Well, it depends on what we compare ourselves to. So if we compare humans to macaques, uh, we have a picture up there to the left. We have certain areas that are much, much larger in humans. But if we compare ourselves to the chimpanzees, then the picture changes. One area that seems to stand out is the frontal pole of the, of the uh, prefrontal cortex. And yes, even though the frontal lobe has not, has not enlarged disproportionately in human evolution, some cortical areas in that frontal lobe actually have changed. 
And uh, the argument I want to make here with you today is sort of in line with what Evan and Dan brought up earlier today in the meeting, in that those areas that have changed in human evolution may seem to be more vulnerable to disorders, including neurodevelopmental disorders. Uh, the questions for the future are, well, what happens to the other cortical areas and how large are they? We still have not had a chance to, to address that. Density and number of neurons, evolution. We have bigger brains have more neurons. We have decrease in cell density and there is a lot of variation and that depends on where exactly we are in the brain. It's not, hom it's not homogeneous. Um, in neurodevelopmental disorders, interestingly, the prefrontal cortex is one of the areas that seems to be extremely vulnerable to disease. And what I have here is an example from uh, a study on autism and controls where we have an overproduction of uh, neurons in the prefrontal cortex in, in, in autism. And we have also the prefrontal cortex being affected in other disorders like Williams syndrome, for example. Cortical mini columns. So the density in the brain, in the cortex, does not uh, uh, just vary homogeneously across cortical areas, but it's specific to where we are in the brain, what leg we are in the brain, and so forth. So early in development uh, in the cortex, what we have is the cells align in, in columns very closely, um, clustered together, and as individual grows older, those mini columns tend to. Um, to, to go farther apart. If we compare monkeys to chimpanzees and to humans, so very big differences in terms of size, humans have a wider space between their mini columns. What we found is it, that actually after the last common ancestor with the great apes, this size of the mini columns, again, is very specific to where in the brain we look at, and one of the areas that has changed the most seems to be, again, the frontal pole. So it is that area uh, that has really seen some dramatic changes in the course of evolution. And on the right, you see an example of mini columns in autism and controls in autism. The mini columns are actually uh, collapsing. We have many, many more cells than we have in controls. Dendritic branching. Uh, I did not pay Evan to introduce that for me, but that's what we see in the phenotype in the brains. Dendritic branching is very important, so this is how neurons communicate to each other. They determine the number of spines and interconnections that the, the, the cells have. So what you have here in the big um, uh, drawing on the left is uh, typical uh, cortical neurons in layer three uh, in various parts of the cortex. And it just so happens that areas that have high integration, like area 10 and other parts of the prefrontal cortex, tend to have larger branched neurons than the lower integration areas in the cortex. In the chimpanzees, we have a similar pattern, but the, the, the overall tree is smaller across, across the brain. Interestingly, neurodevelopmental disorders uh, exhibit uh, a lot of uh, problems in the, in the way that the the cells branch and develop. And what you have at the bottom here is an example of uh, how area 10 has been compromised in Williams syndrome. A fascinating story has to do with uh, the amygdala. So we think a lot about the cortex when we talk about brain evolution, but uh, the reality is that everything in the brain works in terms of systems and circuits. So a very important finding replicated by different lines of work and different laboratories has shown that the lateral nucleus of the amygdala is actually much larger in humans than in great apes and is also affected differentially in Williams syndrome and autism in exactly opposite directions. 
Of course, that becomes even more interesting when we think about the fact that temporal lobe in humans uh, is actually larger than expected, unlike the frontal lobe, temporal is larger than expected, and uh, it just so happens that the lateral nucleus is highly interconnected with the temporal lobe. Of course, neural systems, um, it is very important to bring up this very elegant line of work by Leah Krubitzer here, because nothing uh, in the in evolution of humans and apes in terms of the brain makes sense outside the light of mammalian evolution. And uh, the example here shows you a blind uh, mole rat that uh, still has a visual cortex in its brain and also an entire neural system is still in place. It has not really disappeared in this animal, but guess what? It has been co-opted by other senses. So it functions in a different way, uh, uh, co-opted by the auditory system. Now, experimental work in her lab has shown that if you bilaterally enucleate um, the normal opossum, what you have is not only difference in the cortical areas in that animal, but also a substantial change in how projections from the thalamus go to the visual cortex. So it's not only the cortex that changes, it's also the, the subthalamic nuclei uh, and also the other nuclei, whatever neural system we, we are thinking about. So I'm going to skip these slides in the interest of time, although we have very interesting findings on this triatom and the myelination of, of um, actions. Um, the question now becomes, how can we blend the work on animal models with non-invasive studies on humans and the great apes? What is homologous in terms of function? Because that's really what matters, right? What does it mean to have a structure in place that no longer performs its evolutionary function, but is co-opted by another one? How do we tell them apart in humans and apes? We have this new line of work, this new technology, the induced pluripotent stem cells, which is going to be a discussion probably in the next 10-year celebration of CARTA. But this gives us the power to describe and, and uh, experiment on developmental differences in humans and the great apes in the dish. And I brought up a couple of examples on um, control and Williams syndrome and then apes and, uh, and humans that show the power that uh, putting together classical neuroanatomy techniques with these invasive experimental techniques in the dish can, can, uh, can, can give us. So can we put the phenotype and the mechanism together? That's an, a question for, for the future. Uh, the way I envision the next 10 years of CARTA is uh, putting together the information from the genome to that of live neurons in the dish, the tissue and the brains, the imaging, uh, and then put that together with the bonds in the fossil record. And of course, all of that in the context of the whole organism and the social context, because we are social primates after all. And I would like to leave you with these three questions that I think are very important, not specific to my field, but are very important for our future. We are faced uh, today with unprecedented technological advances. Uh, should our future be driven by technology or by our questions? What about the impact of our science? Who will be in charge? Who is responsible? The STEM, so the sciences, engineering, technology, needs to work together with social sciences and the humanities. And I think that this combination is what makes CARTA training unique, and that's the way of the future. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.